The following episode of Annals on Call is brought to you by Annals of Internal Medicine. For more episodes and links to CME and MOC, visit go.annals.org slash oncall. So I say for type 1s, you really have to consider use of CGMs, or the cost is going to be an issue, but we need to think through that. And, and in type 2s, I think there is also a benefit, especially for the scan devices that are less expensive. Welcome to Annals on Call, a podcast based upon articles from the Annals of Internal Medicine in which we discuss the implications of the article for you, the listener. This is Dr. Bob Centaur. I'm Professor Emeritus at the University of Alabama at Birmingham and former chair of the Board of Regents for the American College of Physicians. Today's podcast is titled Diabetes Technology, Review of the 2019 American Diabetes Association Standards of Medical Care in Diabetes. This article appeared in the Annals of Internal Medicine, August 13, 2019. Joining me for this podcast is Dr. Fernando Ovalli, who is Professor of Medicine and Director of the Division of Endocrinology, Diabetes and Metabolism at the University of Alabama at Birmingham School of Medicine. He has a large clinical practice as well as a major role in clinical research in diabetes. In addition to all of his other activities, he's the editor-in-chief for the journal Diabetes Therapy. I believe you'll learn a lot about how technology can help us take care of patients with diabetes. Thank you for listening. Fernando, thank you so much for joining us to discuss this guideline on self-monitoring of blood glucose and insulin pumps. This is a relatively new technology, and it's very nice that the American Diabetes Association has come out with a guideline on it. Until recently, I didn't know much about continuous glucose monitoring, and could you sort of put that into perspective and talk about the products that patients are using, which patients are using it, and why is it becoming so popular? Well, thanks for having me. So there are several products out there. We call them continuous glucose monitors or CGMs or sensors, glucose sensors. That's the different names that people use for them. Right now, we have four different products in the U.S. market. And they've been around for a while, but they weren't that accurate for a while. So these devices basically attempt to, in a way that it's a little bit invasive, but not, you know, not as much as checking a venous blood glucose or cap or checking your finger mm-hmm. blood glucose, uh, attempt to measure your glucose continuously. And they do it from your interstitial fluid. So there is a lag in the glucose measurements between what happens in blood and what happens in the interstitial fluid. That had been perhaps one of the biggest impediments for these things to kind of be able to be accurate enough and in the market. But they've been able to work through that and they develop pretty good and accurate devices nowadays. Now they're not perfect, but they've gone a long ways in the last 10 years. I would say it's almost one of those uh, hyperbolic curves where we start hearing about methods to measure the glucose uh, non-invasively or minimally invasively in a continuous way. Maybe 20 years ago, I remember there was actually a device that was in the market called the GlucoWatch. I don't know if you remember that, but there was a watch that you could wear and had a couple electrodes under it. I don't remember if you had put gel or not, but sweat 
would just throw it off and it was never accurate. I actually had a sample one and I, it was just totally chaotic. I think it was a placebo effect. So that was the first thing. And then there's been infrared devices and this and that. And lots of stuff still being tested in like contact lens that Google is working on and many other things. But the ones who have been able to work through a lot of these issues and been able to make it to the market are those who actually measure the interstitial glucose. The first one out, I believe, and I could be wrong on this one, although it doesn't matter how lot, was probably the Dexcom. And that was probably a little over 10 years ago. Actually, more like 20 years ago, I believe. Yeah, 20 years ago, because it's 1999. So it's been around for a while. So 20 years ago. And, and Medtronic had came up with theirs as well. Now, most recently, you've had a couple other ones that have come in the market. One of them is by Abbott called Freestyle Livre. And the last one that came into the market is the one called Eversense by Sensionics. So we have those four. Now, the ones that have been around for a while, especially the XCOM, have gone through different versions and they've evolved and they've gotten better themselves. So now there is a real competition out there. And these things have just, uh, I would say, in the last five years, the use of them has taken off because there was a big jump in the technology to make them more affordable, more practical, longer lasting. And now I see, I think about five years ago, the penetration in the market for the type 1 patient was about, I would say, maybe 10% roughly. And since then, now it's in the 30% range. So it's every year you get another 6, 8 points percent added to that. And soon I think most people with type 1 diabetes were able to afford it that are going to have one. So that's interesting. My understanding is that frequent glucose monitoring is much more valuable in type 1 than type 2 diabetes. Do I have that right? Yeah, I think you're right. It's certainly much more needed. They have to otherwise... The glucose variability in type 1 diabetes is so much larger than in type 2 that it becomes necessary to know that because a single measurement, and this is one of the biggest problems with just random or even if it's not random but on frequent use of capillary data, it's really suboptimal as because if you wake up in the morning or let's say it's noon and you haven't checked your blood sugar since 6 in the morning, so 6 hours ago, and you check it with a very accurate device, the finger stick device, it tells you your blood sugar is 180. You don't really know what to do. I mean, you know you're kind of safe, but you don't really know what to do as a type 1 diabetic. Should you take insulin to bring it down because it's a little high or not? And that really depends. And perhaps it can make it worse. What if it's 160? And well, if a patient asks me that, the first thing I ask him, which way is it going? Because what you do for a blood sugar 160 is very different if it's going up or down. And if you haven't checked it for six hours, it means you don't really know. So it's really a 50-50. might just as well flip a coin and say, well, should I take insulin or not? Let me flip one. And so you want to know at least a couple of things. One is, what is the blood glucose? And which way is it going? And how fast is it going? Those are the first pieces of information that you need to make a decision on insulin therapy. If you don't have that, it's already bad enough. There's so many other variables, but you don't have those elements you're really taking a wild guess. So what do you see in your patients who do continuous glucose monitoring? What's the biggest advantage for the patient? Uh, twofold. That's one of them. It's knowing not just what the blood sugar is, but which way is it going and how fast. But another one very important is getting immediate biofeedback. And there's a third one, obviously, the safety. 
And that's a big one. And I don't want to understate it because that's probably one of the most important things is it alerts you when you're going to go low, especially when you're not watching like mm -hmm. at night because a lot of people with type 1 diabetes die in their sleep uh, from a mm -hmm. hypoglycemic event. And the hypoglycemic event may not be bad enough to actually cause brain death, but it may be bad enough to cause an arrhythmia and they die of arrhythmias mm -hmm. at that night. Now, but during the daytime, from a practical perspective, it gives them a lot of biofeedback. You know, a lot of people with diabetes, uh, even with type 1, you know, it's one of those things that it doesn't hurt you if you don't know it. It's uh, like many other things. If you don't know it, you may just feel fine about it and not know it. But if you know that the blood sugar is up, people tend, you know, and not, not everybody, everybody's a little bit different, but a good percent of the population, if they know it's high, especially if it's going up, I want to try to do something about it. It may not necessarily be taking insulin. They may just say, you know what, I was going to eat that, but my blood sugar is already 116 going up. I'm not going to eat it. And that behavioral modification effect, because of immediate biofeedback, is very important. Or I was going to drive my grandchild to a basketball game, but my blood sugar is 120, but it's coming down. I know that it's coming down fast. I'm not going to get in the car with them, or I'm going to eat something, and I'm going to be very careful. All those changes in life, which doesn't imply taking insulin, are extremely important, safety-wise and decision-wise. And people will sometimes say, it's lunchtime, but my blood sugar is going up. Let me walk half an hour that I wouldn't have walked otherwise. Let me eat less. All that's very important. And certainly for the type 1, but for the type 2, extremely important. And I think that's underestimated. Now, again, I think it is important to say not everybody. Some people... No, they never care about anything and they'll be fine. But I would say, I would think that at least half the people care. And half the people, even if they have a much more stable blood glucose with less variability, like the type 2, want to know what the blood sugar is and will change their eating habits and their lifestyle, whether they walk or not, if they can see what's actually happening. If you know, And I've seen it in my clinic a lot of times. People, they get surprised. I didn't know that that happened when I ate that whole cup of rice or that whole plate of spaghetti, which we all do frequently, mm -hmm. I didn't know that my blood sugar will go from 130 to 280. And they don't like it. And that modifies the behavior. They learn to, you know what, I probably shouldn't need that much. And I'm going to have enough for this. All those little things we have not yet been able to capture in clinical trials. And I think we're underestimating the effect that these have in the lives of people with type 2 diabetes as well. So it's interesting and explains why the American Diabetes Association endorses using these monitors so much. I know in the article and in the guideline, they talk about data that shows that just having one of these enables patients to lower their hemoglobin A1C significantly. I assume you see that in your practice. Yes. Just putting these on people usually results in a drop in A1C, which, you know, in average, I think the clinical trials show roughly half a percent of an A1C. And like everything else, as the average, some people have huge effects, some people have smaller effects. But certainly that itself is of value. If you do nothing else, it's a half a percent that's worth it. And not to say the convenience of it. I mean, that's besides the point almost, but, but it's extremely convenient. <laughs> well, let's talk about that convenience and let's put this in the frame. So many people listening to us right now are outpatient internists, but some are hospitalists. So I've had recently a patient get admitted. I think he had the Dexcom continuous glucose monitoring. Should we continue to use that if they're in the hospital? And should that change how we take care of diabetic patients in the hospital? That's a tough question. I think in the future we should. 
but I don't think we're there yet. And one of the problems with this technology is still the lag time. Mm-hmm. I think out there in the practice where the patient knows exactly, you know, if they're well-educated and they know that there could be a lag time and they know themselves and what's going on and they're fully conscious, we can work through that and the lag time of 15 minutes or whatever it is doesn't make a huge difference mm-hmm. practically. In the hospital, unfortunately, that may be a problem, especially when the patient is not the one who's actually making the treatment decisions. And I think most importantly, well, of course, there not be approved for use in the hospital. But that's for a reason is that in addition to the lag time, that lag time may be further amplified by changes in vasculature that occur in, in the hospital setting. Mm-hmm. Like somebody who's infected, septic. Mm-hmm. Well, the capillary is well dilated in that right. setting. But in other settings where they're volume depleted, the capillaries will constrict and the ICU setting, people on pressors. And then the capillary glucose won't reflect the central compartment blood glucose, which is really what matters, the one that goes to the brain and the other organs. Now, on top of that, these devices utilize a reaction that's called the glucose oxidase reaction. Well, that can change. The blood glucose values with devices that use that technology may change if your oxygenation in blood is high or low. So if your patient is getting oxygen therapy and perhaps the O2 sat is too high, maybe their blood glucose could be falsely low in devices like these, or even capillary devices that measure they use that method. The opposite can happen if your O2 sat is low, that could falsely elevate the readings. And that can have significant implications in medical decision-making that could make them dangerous. The way it is right now, even the capillary devices that we use in the hospital are not approved by FDA to use in the critical care setting. Now, we have to because we don't have any way around it, but we have to know how to use them. In the ICUs, for example, we tell people do not get finger stick measures to, to put in those devices. The device is accurate enough in general, but you have to get your blood sample from the central compartment ideally from a central line, you know, draw it from there. If your patient is in the ICU, it's likely to have a central line. Draw the blood from there. And, you know, you don't have to run it to the lab necessarily unless you really want an accurate measurement. You can run in your bedside device, but you have to be a central line. Otherwise, beds are off. People with Raynaud's phenomenon in the hospital, people who have advanced kidney disease, sometimes they have problems with the blood flow microvasculature. They may have false hypoglycemia all the time. And we see that in the console service frequently. So there's a lot of problems that will still exist, even with capillary methods in the hospital, that will be amplified with the use of these devices. So you can use them, but you have to really know what to use. I think we need to limit that and also know that it's not FDA approved, so you can't actually go on. And... So when you advise a patient to start using continuous mm-hmm. glucose monitoring, So let's say somebody's listening who doesn't really have good access to an endocrinologist and they're going to do this themselves. What kind of education do you provide and how do you teach them about using the feedback of the continuous blood sugars to adjust their insulin? I usually tell them that these devices are pretty good. They're very convenient. But if they have a question, if they doubt it, they should check their fingers to make sure that they get an accurate reading. Because in certain situations, they may be misleading. And also, they need to know there is a lag time. And the lag time gets amplified in situations where the blood sugar is moving fast, like after eating. And so they shouldn't be making critical decisions in those settings. On the other hand, I don't want them to think, okay, this is not useful. I think it's extremely useful. I 
tell them one of the most useful parts of these is that um, allows them to tell which ways they're going and how fast. And so I tell, it doesn't matter as long as your blood sugar is above 70. Usually if they're 20 points off, then it's not that big of a deal. As long as you know which ways they're going and how fast, that's really the most important of the equation in that setting. The under 70 then becomes very important, the accuracy. And that's why the FDA has required the manufacturers that the accuracy below 70 has to be within, I believe it's 15 points or something like that. And above that, then the accuracy then, it's allowed for them to deviate from the capillary. It's, it's a little more lax and it's a percent of the blood glucose. So the higher the blood sugar, the biggest the difference that you will find, you know, if the difference is 15% at a blood glucose of 100, well, 15% at a blood glucose of 200 will be 30 points and, you know, mm -hmm. 45 points at 300 and so on. So they have to really know a little bit about the technology. So they do need some teaching. Right. Um, what are the biggest barriers that you see from the patient side when you discuss this? Insurance. And how much is it going to cost? And uh, most people love it, especially once they try them. I think sometimes they feel a little intimidated when they see it. Although now there's so many advertisements in TVs that people are coming and asking for it. But even older people, I mean, all ages, people are coming and asking, can I have one of those? And really the biggest detractor from them is like, how much is it going to cost? Is my insurance going to cover or not? But believe it or not, this is one of those things that many times people are not willing to pay for things cash. This is one that I find a lot of people are willing to pay cash. Even I have a number of people with Medicaid. Medicaid doesn't cover it. But they say, well, I think I can afford that. And it's really a life-changing thing for them. They hate breaking their fingers mm -hmm. because it's the most painful power you can actually be checking blood. And they love these things. They just love it. One of the things they talk about in this guideline is the difference between true continuous glucose monitoring and scanned glucose monitoring. So some of these products will warn you if your blood sugar is low without you having to pick up a receiver. Others, you actually have to check it yourself. It's just instead of doing a finger stick, you put the device near where the scan is. How do you make decisions about those? Because I think those scanned ones are a little bit less expensive yeah. than the continuous ones with the warnings. Well, yeah, that's correct. So in people who have a lot more glucose variability, where the accuracy matters more, then I usually recommend the one that actually pushes the glucose via Bluetooth to mm -hmm. your phone or to another receiver device mm -hmm. and that alerts you. If somebody has much less glucose variability and really don't have a whole lot of problems with hypoglycemia, typical type 2 mm -hmm. diabetic, I may recommend just the basic system because it's less expensive for them as well as for their insurance. And it also is easier to apply a little bit. You know, it's got a little less decisions for them to make or buttons to push or anything. It's just very simple and basic and it's all they need. And it works great. So I recommend both products. And it really depends a little bit on the physiology of the diabetes, type 1 like or type 2 like, but also the patient itself. It's an older patient that I think it will benefit from that or wants device. But I feel that maybe a little more technically challenged. I'm going to recommend usually the freestyle, the, the more basic one that you have to scan. Right. And, you know, let's just clarify here. We usually don't use product names, but I think product names are very important here. These are not generic. Mm -hmm. The scanned one, the most popular one right now is the Freestyle Libra. Correct. And the continuous one that's most popular was the original one, the Dexcom. And it'll give you warnings if you're getting too low or too high, which is useful to a lot of patients. 
but that continuous one is significantly more expensive than the scanned one. Now, I understand the scanned one, they're working on getting it to the point where it actually works more like the continuous glucose with warning, and there's supposed to be a new one coming out in the near future is what I understand. Correct. Yeah, they're all evolving really fast. And the nice thing, too, that I find is they're competing with each other now for the price. Because yeah. what the price was pretty much prohibited before Libre came out. And uh, once that came out, Dexcom had to defend their territory and they had to change their pricing and their models. And now you can get them in the pharmacy as just uh, with any prescription without a contract, which makes a big deal. People want to test them and try them. And sometimes they say, well, I'm going to afford it because my copay is high. So I'm going to use them intermittently or for a month and then not for two months and so on. And that's useful enough. And if you have a contract where you have a payment, like almost like a car payment sometimes, that you're committed to, even if you like it or not, that's a big decision that we're not willing to make. As opposed to just going to the pharmacy when you feel like, okay, you're right. And we don't have those contracts anymore the other thing that this guideline discussed was insulin pumps. How do you decide that a patient is a candidate for insulin pumps? And my understanding is that some of these pumps are starting to work in conjunction with the continuous glucose monitor. Is that right? Yes. Well, with the pumps, to some level, this technology used by the pumps also gives any patient an edge, whether they're type 1s or type 2s. There is evidence out there that people with type 1, especially type 1, but also with type 2 diabetes, can do better on a pump. But these devices do require a lot more technical savviness of the patient and interaction, and they're more costly, and they require a contract. And so you really have to pick, you know, because we're always dealing with benefits and risks and cost benefits, because if this were free and, you know, yeah. nobody had to pay for it, then I think everybody with diabetes that needed insulin should be in a pump, because they're better. It gives them not just the ability to use less insulin, which tells you something about it. A typical type of diabetic that you switch, who is doing great on injections, but you switch into a pump, they can continue to do just as great with an A1C, the average, but they have less variability in blood glucose. They have less hypoglycemia, they have more flexibility, and they use about 20% less insulin. So that physiologically tells you something, and that translates into other health benefits. So if they were free, then I don't think there should be a reason not to try to get most people in. Now, not everybody's a candidate. They require a level of sophistication, education that not everybody can achieve. And some people, just by getting older, they're not able to use them appropriately and perhaps it can become dangerous. Even some younger people, if they are not on top of their blood glucose measurements, and these devices can be dangerous because if you're not watching your blood glucose and you just got to sleep without knowing what it is, and if these things, for whatever reason, don't deliver insulin appropriately, usually because the line is kinked or the, the infusion catheter there is, is bent or something like that, they can wake up in DKA. And so they require people to be on top of the things. If they are on top of the things, they'll do better. But it's more work and more cost. So that keeps us from offering to everybody. And I would say in my own practice, I like them, but not everybody uses them. And I would say maybe half my practice with type 1 diabetes has them. And only a small fraction of people with type 2 diabetes use them where I feel like we can make a difference in those patients. I just wanted to finish up by just mentioning a lot of latent autoimmune diabetes of adults because I recently had a patient in the hospital who was labeled as type 2 and comes in with 15 pounds of unintentional weight loss with a good appetite, had BMI of 28, had no family history of diabetes, and we were able to show that he had anti-GAD, low insulin, low C-peptide. 
do we consider these a type of type 1? And how does that fit into this conversation, those patients? That's an area that's very interesting to me. I've been interested in that for over 20 years. And also, still, there's a lot of questions on that. And it's an area where research has been lacking in the U.S., The Europeans have been looking at that data for a while, and I think in general the Europeans believe that LADA is no more than a patient who has developed type 1 diabetes later in life, and because of that they tend to be a little more slowly progressive. That's where I think the majority of the literature is going to fall into. However, if you listen to all the groups, there is a group in the U.S. who's been looking at that in the Northwest. And there is some data to support that. Maybe the patient with LADA actually may be a little bit of a hybrid. And maybe we're really talking about two different types of diabetes. There can be a slowly progressive type 1 diabetes that presents insidiously. They may not need insulin right away, but they're really truly type 1s. And there may be somebody who may be a little more like a type 2 diabetic that becomes much more insulin deficient and type 1-like that we can call the lab. And maybe those are different subtypes. So this gets into an area of research that's still kind of early where we can get into more precision diabetes, precision medicine. I would say that the difference, if you want to say, well, this is more like the ladder with insulin resistance or versus the insulin sensitivity, is look at their blood pressure, look at their BMI, look at their lipids. If And I think when you look at them all, if you just grab everybody who gets diagnosed as an adult with LADA and you say, well, we're going to call this LADA because they didn't need insulin right away, you're going to get an average and you're going to have a heterogeneous group. But if you separate them, you're going to find some that have totally normal blood pressure, totally normal HDLs and triglycerides, and totally normal MBMIs that are really slowly progressed step ones. So you're going to find some that have elevated blood pressure and all that. So when you group them together, you find that the phenotype of LADA in general falls between type 1 and 2. But I think we're grouping two diabetes in that group. So we would treat the adult patient who develops low insulin, low C-peptide, etc., like we would treat the young people who have type 1 diabetes, and they would be good candidates for continuous glucose monitoring, etc. Yes, I think so. Well, this has been really worthwhile. I'm going to give you one chance. We have a lot of excellent outpatient internists who take care of patients. What's the biggest message that you want them to get out of this guideline and the whole movement of technology in diabetes care? Well, I think there's a couple of things. One of them, since we mentioned Lada, is the fact that a patient develops diabetes as an adult doesn't mean that they have type 2 diabetes. That's why we did away with the term adult onset diabetes. So one of the few things you have to kind of think through in the differential diagnosis is, is the blood pressure elevated? Is their triglyceride elevated? If they are, yeah, they're probably type 2. But if they are not, if they, especially if they're lean, if they don't have a family history of diabetes or they have little family history of diabetes, they have normal HDL, normal triglycerides, even if they don't need insulin, they're probably type 1s or LADAs, however we want to call them. That's important. Why? Because those people sooner or later are going to need insulin. And people on insulin, we need to consider using devices, the technology, because it's really improving the outcomes of these people. I don't think the outcome studies will be here time soon that we can say, yeah, people who use a CGM, you know, live longer and better. Those studies will probably take years, if not decades, if they will ever be done. But it's one of those things that we know it's going to happen. The improvements are palpable in how they feel, in how they feel empowered, and the safety of them. And the A1C the benefit is definitely there. So I say for type 1s, you really have to consider use of CGMs. 
or the cost is going to be an issue, but we need to think through that. And, and in Tab Tools, I think there is also a benefit, especially for the scan devices that are less expensive. I think the behavioral modification effects that they have needs to be considered. I don't think there is enough literature out there, but it's certainly once you start using them, you realize it really happens. And there's very few things that really change behavior that we can use in the practice as effective as these, I think. And uh, even though the data is not out there, I think one of the things that we have to start thinking about. Well, thank you so much, Fernando. This has been very educational and very relevant with a disease that is so common in everybody's practice. Now it's time for Bob's Pearls. This wide-ranging conversation focused primarily on continuous glucose monitoring. As Dr. Ovali mentions, it's not just the number, but the direction of the numbers of the estimated current glucose that are useful in helping patients learn how to use their insulin and modify their behavior. He emphasized several times that the biofeedback of being able to find out what your glucose is without having to do a finger stick and understanding the direction and magnitude of that direction, he sees helps patients change their behavior, change their eating habits, and increase their exercise in a positive way. He and the article both focus that continuous glucose monitoring is documented to help type 1 diabetic patients lower their hemoglobin A1C on an average of 0.5. He finally mentions that even though there's no clear recommendation in type 2 diabetes, he has quite a few patients who have had successful improvements in their control because the feedback helped them learn how to better manage their diet and exercise. So he also does use continuous glucose monitoring in those patients. We hope you've learned something that will be useful in your care of patients from this podcast. Thank you for listening. For more episodes of Annals on Call and links to CME and MOC, visit go.annals.org slash oncall. Participant statements on this podcast reflect the views of the participants and not necessarily those of the journal or the American College of Physicians, unless so identified. The information contained in the podcast should never be used as a substitute for clinical judgment. Mm-hmm.